From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As cases of COVID-19 drop at Denver Health, the ICU is still busy with other illnesses. But some good news you might not expect. And I think what everybody's jaw is dropping about is that we have seen virtually no influenza, no seasonal influenza this year. A critical care doctor joins us with the new challenges facing frontline healthcare workers and the disparities that continue in the pandemic. Then finding common ground for cattle grazing and protecting the Colorado Plateau. And two college students behind a startup that preserves the stories of families while empowering young women of color. Me wanting to resonate more with my own story and my own parents' story and my ancestors' stories and history made me think about how important it is for everybody to do that. And so that's why I really resonate with what we do with Mama Bird interviews. I'm Carol from Highlands Ranch. I'm an Evergreen member. Today is so stressful, and when I tune into CPR, either the news or the classical music, I just feel my soul renewed. You do offer a healing that you just don't realize the depth of, and I thank you for that. Thank you for your continued essential support for CPR. This doesn't happen without you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. COVID-19 cases and deaths continue to drop steadily in Colorado and across the country, and vaccinations are on the rise. Right now, Denver Health is only treating a handful of coronavirus patients. Dr. Ivor Douglas is an intensive care pulmonologist at that hospital. He's leading their COVID-19 response. Dr. Douglas, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, and thank you to CPR for your consistently high-quality repertoire through the pandemic. Appreciate that. Uh, how many COVID-19 inpatients is your hospital treating today? Yeah, so midnight last night, there were 11 patients that still had active infection. We have a, about another half dozen that are in the recovery phase and really dealing with the devastating consequences of prolonged respiratory failure. So many of these are patients who are still on life support but are no longer considered to have infection in an active state. How does that compare to the peak of COVID-19 cases at Denver Health? Um, <laughs> it's like the tsunami wave has passed over us and we're now uh, just getting our heads above water. You know, we at our peak had uh, uh, four to five dozen patients gravely ill in-house and then lots more that were modestly ill that were generally cared for um, on, our, on our non-ICU services. And that's, that was consistent with all of our colleagues across the front range, the university, and to many of the other hospitals. And I think that if we look at the current scenario, it is, um, it's quite remarkable how the last month has seen a, a 180 in terms of patient volume. And unfortunately, uh, there are still patients dying who've been around and cared for during this last month. To hear you say, though, that your heads are finally become getting above water. That is, those are hopeful words. What's behind this dropping? Oh, go ahead. No, I think there's a lot to be hopeful. So, thank you for that comment. What's behind the drop in coronavirus cases and deaths? Honestly, I think it's just the the meticulous adherence to what people have ascribed, have been recommending for all of this last year, which is that after. To the thank December uh, uh, opening, which was premature, 
was the recognition that we really do need to double down on basic public health requirements of distancing masks, hand hygiene, and limiting uh, uh, public cohorting uh, in the community. And I would love to ascribe any of what we're seeing now to vaccinations. And I, I still believe that if you look at the, the fraction of our population that's vaccinated, it's still way too early to make that, uh, that uh, assignment. I think that uh, we will see the benefit of vaccines come through in the next month to three. But uh, much of what we're seeing is just what people have said, reduce harm through good public health measures. Are we at the point where we can tentatively hope this pandemic may be winding down? Or do you see potential for more spikes, especially considering variants of the virus that are spreading? Yeah, I think that uh, that the betting money is on the latter proposal. Um, I, I do believe we're going to continue to have wavelets. Um, and the hope is that those wavelets can be pushed way down the road to the point where we have the substantially greater percentage of our population uh, immunized. Um, the challenge that we do have is that the emergence of, of uh, what are potentially highly contagious and potentially highly virulent variants, uh, and uh, certainly you, you've been covering some of these, including the B117 variant, uh, first uh, identified in the United Kingdom, uh, variants that come from South Africa and from Brazil, all of which are no longer localized. They're here in Colorado. They're here in the southern tier of the United States. And um, it is now a race against time to prevent that spreading and get our population fully immunized through vaccination. And when it comes to vaccines, we're seeing a lot of buzz about how eligibility differs across states. People with certain health conditions may be eligible in Texas, but not in Colorado, for example. How do questions about who to prioritize for vaccinations affect you and your work? Um, yeah, very, very much so. Let's just speak about that fragmentation and the disparities that arise from fragmentation. Uh, there's a rather useful graphic in the New York Times over the weekend that compares relative eligibility for what are termed comorbidities, in other words, pre-existing medical conditions. And the frustration as a pulmonologist and an intensivist is that um, patients that I am responsible for caring with, for example, with a chronic lung disease called cystic fibrosis, um, are eligible in a limited number of states, and I think quite reasonably to be vaccinated right now, but in many states have limited or no access to vaccines. The question about tobacco smokers, active tobacco smokers, while uh, contentious, certainly warrants discussion. Um, and there is a tremendous variability across the states in how that um, is being applied. The real concern we have, as we appreciate, is getting enough uh, doses of vaccine to the point of delivery. But then if there is in inequity or a lack of equitable access for patients with comparable conditions, we're going to continue to see a level of frustration and confusion in our community that adds to the existing racial and socioeconomic disparities that have really uh, hampered our ability to respond to this pandemic from the get-go. And we're going to talk more about those in just a moment. First, for people who are fully vaccinated, the CDC put out new guidelines this week that they can gather indoors with people without masks as long as no one is at high risk for severe illness from COVID-19. What's your perspective on the new guidelines? Well, I, I'm, I really am uh, so appreciative of the much greater clarity in uh, communicating uh, valid scientific observation from the CDC. 
My real concern is that there is so much pent-up demand and exuberance, and it's completely legitimate, and I include my own family in that exuberance, to get together and have social interaction, that I'm concerned that the second part of the modified CDC guidelines, which say only have those contacts if the people that you're in contact with aren't at high risk, will be ignored. And the problem is that um, I am concerned that the notion that small gatherings with limited number of people will quickly turn into large gatherings with unselected families or friends where there are at-risk people who are not immunized. And so I think the balance here is trying to measure the social and psychological health benefits of communal gathering with the persistent risks that we have that are unmeasured. And it does come down to these variants now. And because we really don't have a good grasp on the how widespread they are or their risk for infecting people who've already had COVID before or are vaccinated, I really have a measure of concern. That doesn't mean that it isn't important to move forward. It is. We've got to start normalizing. But I really have to urge a consistent adherence to the good public health measures that we start off discussing this morning. So caring for other people is still important. The pandemic, as you mentioned, it's highlighted racial inequities in healthcare. Even as COVID-19 cases decline, how are you seeing that in your hospital now? Yeah, so at Denver Health, I think this, this has been the most painful part of our experience, which is um, having multiple members of the same family, inner city families, uh, black and brown Americans who um, are admitted on occasion two or three members of the same family to ICU. And when you appreciate why that's happening, it is the same challenges that we've had from the the beginning of the pandemic that essentially exposed this multi-century long uh, racial and socioeconomic disparity in our community where people who are obliged to be frontline workers who don't have the liberty of easy social distancing uh, are exposing multiple family members, including those with underlying high-risk conditions. And without specifics of individual patients, we've had a mom and a son in our ICU um, that, uh, that had devastating outcomes in some cases. And it really highlights the reality of what racial inequity and disparity looks like. I will say that encouragingly, a recent CDC publication over the weekend looked at the evolution of the pandemic with regards to younger people, now this is not older people, and showed that encouragingly, as time has passed, the disparities in rates of infection have somewhat ameliorated with time, in that the gaps between black and brown Americans and Caucasian Americans has narrowed, but they still persist even into the fourth quarter of 2020. Well, Dr. Douglas, I want to thank you so much for sharing. It's been an honor and, again, really appreciate the opportunity to highlight the wonderful work of the healthcare providers in our ICUs across the state and nationally and uh, really recognize that uh, if ever there was a reason that critical care is a team sport, it's mm-hmm. this experience with COVID-19. Dr. Ivor Douglas is an intensive care pulmonologist at Denver Health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Environmentalists say cattle grazing is damaging land on the Colorado Plateau, a vast stretch of territory that crosses four states, including a sizable chunk of western Colorado. They're particularly concerned about what's happening on public land. But in the ranching community, some say that they can protect the land through responsible use, and too much regulation could damage the economy and their way of life. Mary O'Brien studies how cattle grazing on the plateau affects the ecosystem. Tom Tippett's is regional coordinator for the Grazing Improvement Program sponsored by Utah's Department of Agriculture. Tom, Mary, welcome. Hi. Hello. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you. Mary, can you compare grazed and ungrazed land? How does it look different? That's a good question. Grass seed heads are often bitten off so that there's just what's called stubble, the bottom two inches often uh, left of the grass. There will be less litter. That's dead plant. And often the flowers have been eaten off the wildflowers that are tasty to livestock. For instance, you might see lots of lupin flowers remaining after grazing, but that's because cattle don't eat those. You say that ecosystems without cattle are healthier. So let's tackle a couple of the problems you're concerned with, starting with maybe just their walking on the land. What do you see that doing to land? When cattle get water in the creek, they step on the edge of the bank and the bank collapses, which widens the creek, which makes uh, more exposed to the sun, which then warms the water. You can have these cascading effects. Tom, you were a rancher for a long time. Did you see the impacts that Mary is talking about? When you use livestock on uh, grazing lands, they do remove biomass. They eat grasses, they eat shrubs, they eat forbs. That's exactly what you want them to do. So, But depending on how intense that grazing is done, you know, if they're going around, you know, 50% utilization, they don't take everything down to the ground. That one to two inch stubble height that Mary talked about is not present in a, in a moderately or 50% grazed situation. They do use uh, water. They need water. And one of the things that we do do is try to remove the cattle or uh, provide them access to places other than the creek sides where they're not trampling into the creek and the banks and whatnot. We put uh, livestock sources, you know, upland. Who's responsible for making sure that land is grazed responsibly? Uh, depends on ownership. If it's privately land, it's the it's the person that owns that land is responsible and has you know control of what level of grazing is done on there. If it's federal land, it's the federal administrators, uh, forest rangers, and uh, BLM have some control over that. And so, boils down to who owns the land. Mary, can you give us a sense of how much of the land that people see is grazed? Over 60% of BLM lands are grazed in the West, and over 40% of Forest Service lands are grazed. But what isn't grazed is often what is above tree line. Wherever cattle can go, they are grazed. And generally, in your view, what is the effect of cattle grazing on climate change? Well, that's an interesting one, because during climate change, with higher temperature and more frequent droughts, plants are already having trouble growing. They're short on water. 
And then we provide the cattle with water in cow ponds and pumped water from springs and creeks. So plants are on their own on the public lands, and yet the livestock are not on their own. Mary, I do want to clarify, are you saying that you want to do away with cattle altogether as a food source? No. My largest concern is livestock on public lands. Because on private land, you can irrigate and grow European pasture grasses and feed a lot of cattle on a smaller piece of land. Whereas um, grazing cattle across vast acreages of public lands produces only 4% of all the beef that is eaten in the U.S. Tom, I'd love to get your response here. Well, she touched on a couple of things. Um, she talked about 4% of the cattle comes off public lands. And that is not exactly true. Most of our cattle go through some type of cattle cycle. Uh, if they're raised on public lands, go through that system and at some point end up in feedlots before harvest. And so you can't say that only 4% of our cattle from public lands are being into the food supply when they go through that system and come out through the feedlot system much more than just 4% is going directly to consumers through that uh, cattle cycle. And so I think those numbers are a little misleading. We are a much more, especially an economic driver in the state of Utah, much more important than just 4%. Some of these rural counties in Utah depend on livestock grazing for the economic drivers of, the, of these areas. They're the things that are keeping those small counties in business, if you could, if you can say that. And when you talk about rural counties in Utah, would the same hold true that those would be economic drivers for rural counties in Colorado? I believe so. I think Colorado is a little bit different east to west. You know, the eastern slope is a much more privately owned area. The Colorado Plateau in in a whole is probably more existent in the western or the, the west slope of Colorado. Yes, those areas are probably a little more similar. And clearly... You all have some differences of opinion, but we mentioned that you and Mary are talking about some solutions. Tom, I'd love for you to go first. What would solutions to finding common ground on this look like? I think we could both agree that the livestock have an effect on the range. And uh, if we can work together to get to a moderate, you know, that 40 to 60 percent utilization across all range ground, that's probably something that would improve the range uh, region wide, improved Ecological conditions on grazing grounds and on allotments benefit a host of things. Wildlife, birds, pollinators, livestock, livestock operations, communities, economics. And so I think those are some common grounds we probably both agree on. Um, I might comment on the economics. Studies show that 30% utilization is much better economically for the permittee as well as for the ecology of the land, because it leaves more grass at the end of the grazing season. So the plant is healthier and produces larger plants the next year. It's kind of like, do you draw down your bank account until there's only $100? And it's the same with grass. If you draw it down to just stubble, you don't have much energy in that plant to grow the next year, particularly in drought. 
And the two of you have worked together before on solving environmental problems and navigating things like this, where you have different ideas of what you think the correct utilization should be. It's a project in Utah to improve the health of aspen trees, for example, and it seems like environmental issues, they push people apart a lot of the time. How do you get two sides of an issue to work together? Lots and lots of meetings. Yeah. (laughs) And interestingly, Tom and I have worked in groups together for years now where the decision-making is by consensus. That means everybody in that group has to agree on a decision. That means we have to listen to each other. And Tom is a good listener. He works with um, facts about um, the realities of grazing. So you might think, well, we're on opposite sides of the fence, but we can work together in a consensus fashion. We can. We've done it. It just takes a long time to get there. It's not something that we can sit down in an afternoon, hash out differences. And a lot of it goes on um, being able to see the same thing at the same time. One of the strengths of this uh, collaboration that Mary is talking about. Monroe Mountain is a mountain range within central Utah, and they'd like to do some uh, restoration of aspen trees. And we had a large group, and uh, we took them out on a multi-day field trip several times through this whole collaboration. And the the advantage to that is everybody was able to point to the same piece of ground and say, this is what I'm seeing right here. And we could kind of have different opinions, but before we left that little piece of ground, we could at least understand what everybody was seeing and why. These are areas that you both care about deeply, even if you are still coming to a consensus on what caring for them looks like. Before we go, I'd love to for each of you to just briefly tell me, what is your goal for the Colorado Plateau? Economic and uh, ecological sustainability is what I would uh, say is my ultimate goal. I think livestock grazing has a large spot in that, although uh, outliers, um, poor management um, is always a problem and, and uh, increased management is, a, is one of those things we can do there. And Mary, what about for you? Well, my goal is that we face climate change. The hotter temperatures, the deeper droughts, Um, the generation of dust, all of this is making us rethink our relationship to Colorado Plateau. And it limits what we can do. We can't think we can take as much water as we want. We can't fly in planes as much as we want without causing climate change. We can't use as much energy as we want in a in a giant house. And that means doing a lot more thoughtful use of resources. Well, I just want to thank you both so much for sharing your perspectives, both where you differ and also your hope for how you come together. Thanks for being here. Thank Thanks you both. Us. Mary O'Brien is a former program director at the Grand Canyon Trust. Tom Tippetts is regional head of Utah's Grazing Improvement Program. They're working to minimize damage to the ecosystem on the Colorado Plateau. After the break, a startup that's preserving family stories and advice. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
This week on the CPR News Politics Podcast, Purplish, Governor Polis's pandemic year. I was with Polis at a vaccine clinic and volunteers there had created a pinata in the shape of the COVID-19 virus. And he was just whacking the pinata again and again and again. <laughs> that might be one of the most relatable things I've ever heard about Polis. <laughs> Purplish, a new episode every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Mama Bird Interviews describes itself as a slingshot. It's a startup that helps people record their own stories. It also aims to economically empower the interviewers, who so far are all women of color, and launch them into their next jobs with more experience, skills, and money. Dan Clark teaches business at Northeast Early College in Denver's Montbello neighborhood. He borrowed the idea for Mama Bird Interviews. The idea comes from my father, and he started it because he recorded his father, who had cancer, and passed away shortly after the recording. And because of him doing that, I'm able to watch and get to know my grandfather in a better way, um, who passed away when I was eight. And even more importantly than that, my kids will be able to get to know their heritage through these recordings. By the numbers, Montbello is a low-income neighborhood, and the majority of residents are people of color. Institutional inequalities have existed there for a long time, like lack of access to education, healthy food, stable jobs. Clark said he's seen his students struggle in college as a result. Teaching in high school, I saw these amazing kids come through our programs, graduate, go away to college, but not find success in college through different systemic issues, and it just broke my heart. And as I've become aware of my own privilege, once I became aware of that, I needed to do something about that to really do anti-racist work. Then the pandemic hit. My students are on the front line working frontline jobs that are often minimum wage. Their parents are often working frontline jobs that are also low paying. And seeing this disconnect as I sit here in my fancy house in the Central Park neighborhood. And so then I started to put together with this Zoom world we're living in, it makes it so easy to record conversations. And so I started seeing that as a, a way that we could do these legacy and wisdom interviews. Clark launched Mama Bird interviews last summer with a combination of grants and personal savings. He co-owns it with a few of his former students. They're selling interviews recorded over Zoom to people who want to document different life events like weddings or retirement. And to folks like parents and grandparents who want to pass on their stories and advice. Many of the interviewers and paid interns are young people with roots in the Montbello neighborhood. So... They could get paid well for this time. It has an incredible value for now and for the future. The sustainable side looks like we charge $333 for these interviews. 200 of those dollars goes directly to the young woman who's doing the interview. And this is real money for part-time work. The young people that I've had the privilege to teach over the years will make great leaders in the future, and they will make the world better for all of us. And if we can get roadblocks out of the way for them, if we can empower them and encourage them, then they will make the world better for all of us. And so that's the world I want my kids to grow up in. The world I want to live in is a world where young people from marginalized communities are able to have power in the world and really, again, support their own communities, but also the rest of the world. Ariana Proctor and Yusura Ali have known Clark since he taught them film in middle school. Now Proctor is a sophomore at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she's studying journalism and media production. Ali is a junior at CU Denver. She's studying anthropology. They're co-owners of Mama Bird Interviews. Ariana, what about your work of preserving other people's stories energizes you? 
I think what energizes me is knowing that in the future, their children and grandchildren and any future family members will have the chance to have that extra time with the person that we're interviewing. And especially with this last year in November, my own grandma passed away and I wanted to do this interview with her, but I didn't get the chance to. And so I really see the importance of preserving these memories of people and learning from people in those ways and even allowing them to have that reflection. A lot of the times before the interviews, people aren't the most excited because they're nervous of what it might look like or if they'll say the wrong thing. But after the interview, they're always so excited and glad. I'm sorry about your grandma. That's really good perspective, though. Yusura, what about for you? What energizes you? What energizes me is the benefits that we get as interviewers from listening to these stories. There's so much that you can learn from other people, and I've taken so much away from them. And I think I constantly grow from those interviews, and I just become a whole better person. I recently interviewed my parents for a class assignment, and you know I was blown away by everything they said in their life story. And I'm glad that I have that because we think we know the people, you know, are here, but there's some stuff that you know we don't always hear. Yeah. Let's listen to you in action. Ariana, this is part of an interview that you recorded with Brenda J. Allen, Professor Emerita at CU Denver's Department of Communication. What tips do you have for people to overcome obstacles in life because of their identity? I, I want to be careful here because I, I get concerned when people say things like, just work hard because just working hard is no guarantee. So I don't want to say that even as I know it is important to work hard. Does that make sense? (laughs) I guess I want to say, regardless of the narrative about your identity, if there's something about your identity where there are especially negative and counterproductive narratives about fill in the blank, Black people this, Black women, or people who are, uh, you know, let's say a lesbian, blah, blah poor people this, right? So there are these narratives swirling around, implicit and explicit. I would say resist the negative narrative about who you are. I would also say try as much as you can to take initiative to create opportunities and also when opportunity knocks to open the door. Ariana, a lot of people have access to recording equipment on their phones and computers now. So they could record these stories and advice themselves. So what do you think is the value of recording a conversation like the one that you had with Brenda J. Allen instead? Yeah, if someone prefers to do this themselves, it's definitely a doable thing. And we just think it's important to record their stories. But it's really beneficial to have someone that you're not maybe as close to to ask you these questions because I feel like it can take some of the nerves away, honestly. And Yusura, how do you think about that dynamic where you're the interviewer and how does that change the story that the interviewee is telling? I think you get more detail out of it when you know someone you might exclude because you already expect them to know. And also, it's just so exciting always meeting new people and talking to new people. I had a recent interview with this anthropology professor and at the moment I was going back and forth if I should switch my anthropology major and she just talking to her and how passionate she was about anthropology She didn't know that was considered changing my major, but that like had a big impact on me. The excitement that she got, we were able to bounce off of each other. So that's what I really love about this whole process. I love that. That's one of my favorite part of interviewing people, too, is it's just a conversation and you get to learn so much. Um, Nusura, you interviewed a woman named Mirabel Sharika. What traditions would you like to pass on to your daughters? 
when I was growing up, my dad would tell me, if you want to do something in this life, do it very well or you don't do it at all. So that's what I always want to tell my daughters. If you want to do something, you do it very well or you don't do it. It's because it's, it's that spirit that I had that led me to where I am today. That spirit of determination. Let the challenges not weigh you down. Be bent of, on the fact that you're going to achieve it and you will get there. That's very inspiring about your daughters look up to you. Um, talking about looking up, who do, who do you look up to? My mom, she's, she's been a tough lady. So looking at where we are today and how we are brought up, I look up a lot to her. Yeah. She's a source of inspiration. Yusura, what have people told you about the value they've found in the recorded interviews? I've been told um, a lot how excited they were um, about things they want to share onto their family. and their. So those are some valuable, really valuable lessons. And the clip that you just played, she, the advice that she gave her daughters, it's also something I know I needed to hear um, and my team needed to hear. So most of the time we don't hear about our parents' stories and I know it's really meaningful. And these interviews are a little different from news interviews like the one we're doing right now. People are paying you to help them record their stories and their wisdom. How do you prepare for interviews with folks and decide what questions to ask or what topics to talk about? Ariana? Yeah, a big part of that is really working with a family member that might have purchased the interview or finding someone that is close in their life that we can get some advice from and ask them, like, what are some parts of their life that you feel like are important to document or some good questions that you think that um, would be good for us to ask. And I know that for one particular interview, it was very interesting because the lady that I was interviewing thought it would be a good idea to kind of separate it into different quarters of her life. And so we kind of went through different age brackets and I asked her questions that kind of associated with those years of her life. And so she was able to think about it chronologically. And so we definitely also work with the people we're interviewing to make them more comfortable. Mama Bird Interviews, it was founded to help preserve people's stories. It's also founded to economically empower the interviewers. Ariana, can you tell me more about the business model? Yeah, and that's also what's so awesome about Mama Bird Interviews is the fact that um, it's 80% owned by young women of color. And so the money, most of it goes to the young women conducting the interview. A lot of us in our school that we went to or from our neighborhood went through a lot of hard things. And so it's hard to really see ourselves in those positions of power. But when we're getting to talk with people that uh, may live different lifestyles than us, getting to interview them and then receive some type of um, the money from the interview goes to us towards helping to support our future goals and our future dreams. Mental health care is another component that's actually built into Mama Bird. Interviewers have access to therapy through the Center for Trauma and Resilience. Yusura, why do you think that that's an important part of this work? Um, because first, being able to tell your story takes a lot of, you know, courage. And, you know, and also listening to stories is takes a lot from people. Sometimes, you know, there are traumatic issues within our stories. And having someone help you process those tra- um, trauma and help you work through those trauma is really important. So with Mama Bird, we we are ensuring that people have that, you know, that option when they work with us because we understand how important it is. Um, and we realize that from the beginning when we're telling stories is like mental health is really important and we need to make sure that everyone 
is coverage. Yeah, I love that y'all are acknowledging that like telling people stories is a joy, but it also means that you absorb a lot of emotion. Ariana, how do you see caring for your mental health as an important part of being an effective storyteller? I think that like telling our stories has made us realize the importance of taking care of yourself and your mental health and in certain communities, um, like I know mine, it's like a taboo thing to talk about mental health. And it's seen as something that you shouldn't be talked about, like with my mom and her depression, but it can impact you in real ways and people in real ways. And so I think something that is important for people to know is that you can't help others unless you help yourself. And so a lot of my life, I've grown up wanting to always help other people, but not really wanting to listen to myself and what I need. And so really making sure that I'm considering my mental health and what it is that I need to do so that I can properly help other people and properly listen to other people, um, I think has helped with that because a big part of allowing people to tell their stories is being able to listen. That's Ariana Proctor. She's a sophomore at CU Boulder and co-owner of Mama Bird Interviews, a startup that's helping people document their stories and economically empowering young women of color. Yusura Ali is also a co-owner and a junior at CU Denver. I wanted to know why Yusura and Ariana joined on when their former teacher, Dan Clark, approached them with the idea last year. Yusura said it had a lot to do with this song from the musical Hamilton about, you know, Alexander Hamilton. His wife, Eliza, sings after he dies. I interview every soldier who fought by your side I try to make sense of your thousands of pages of writings You really do write, but you're running out of time I rely on Angelica. At the end of Hamilton, Eliza sings about um, telling her story and She talks about telling uh, Alexander's story And then she asks who's going to tell my story So that's something I was thinking about Like no one could tell your story better than you can And that's why I think it's so important I love that um, Ariana, what about you? How did you get involved and how does it fit into your story? Yeah, I got involved also last year when we started Mama Bird. And so I had previously been connected with Clark and helping him with a lot of video work because I'm interested in that. And during COVID, I think it really inspired him and all of us to realize and think about how important it is to tell our stories, especially in a pandemic when so many people are losing family members. And so I think for me, why I resonated with the story of Mama Bird interview so much is growing up, I saw what it was like to have parents that have gone through a lot in life and how that has impacted me growing up and my own confidence as a person and not really completely understanding their stories. Um, And I never knew either of my grandfathers. And so I just have always been interested in learning about my own history as well and how that kind of trickles down into who I am now. I've always been scared to kind of talk to people about who I am in my past and things I've gone through, but it's so important because it's a part of who you are. And so me wanting to resonate more with my own story and my own parent's story and my ancestors' stories and history made me think about how important it is for everybody to do that. Yeah, both of my granddads died before I was born. It's one of those things that I didn't think about so much when I was little, but the older I get, the more I realize how much I'm missing not knowing their stories. Yusura, you said that you didn't see much representation of Black Muslim women in the media growing up. How is Mama Bird part of changing the larger cultural narratives about who tells stories and whose stories are told? Uh, when we first began this organization, Clark asked me, who are some of your you know, Muslim role models? Um, and I, like, I didn't even know where to start with that question because I like, had no idea of any. But we did an exercise where we started first to be accepting of our own stories and since you know our big thing is stories and telling your story we had to tell our own stories and 
it was a bit hard for me telling my story about being Muslim and um, res- representation of being Muslim. And for a long time, I've kind of shied away, like was in a corner. It's like, no one wants to hear my story. Um, it's not that relevant. Let me just like get my work done. Um, but I've learned my story is important. And I've not, I'm now like reaching out to people and finding that there are like many African-American Muslim women in the United States who are doing great things. I connected with this woman at Howard and she's like 22 years old and she's in a doctorate program and she's also a professor. So it's like, there are so many amazing people out there with amazing stories that we don't hear about, but they are out there. And with Mama Bird, we are seeking to tell those diverse stories. I love the way you talk about how it's not just about saying the words or hearing the story. It's the real connections that you make because of it. Like stories have a real effect in the world. Ariana, what about you? How do you see Mama Bird changing the narrative about stories? Yeah, a big thing that I'm very interested in is media representation and who is in control of um, of stories that are being told and how that impacts society. And stories play a big part in the way that we all view each other and the way that we treat each other. If young women of color are able to take control of their representations in the media and show what it really means to be a young woman of color in the society, and so I think that's a big part of the impact it has is us being these young women of color talking to a lot of the people that we have been talking to are older white people. And so kind of crossing that divide and learning about each other in ways that we may not have been able to without Mama Bird interviews, I think it changes the narrative and um, allows us to have that compassion for each other and feel empowered in that way and change who is the ones, I guess, telling their stories and the ones the charge to learn from each other. Yusra, I love that you mentioned that you started learning how to tell stories at Mama Bird by telling your own story. Would you feel comfortable sharing that with me? Yes. Um, so I am an immigrant from Kenya, but my family is from Somalia. My parents fleed Somalia because there was a war. And um, my mom talked about how literally for like years she was living off of fish and water and constantly running away from, you know, different areas of Somalia. And then she met my father and they moved to Kenya where they got stepped into refugee camp. I was actually born in a refugee camp, um, which which is crazy. Um, but when I was six years old, we got approved to come to America. And from there, you know, the struggle between who I am, you know, the constant cultural, you know, differences, um, because, you know, America is really about individualistic. And then my culture is all about like family and family first. Um, and then, of course, the whole religion thing and navigating religion in high school, middle school. Um, there was a moment in when I was in middle school, someone uh, a, a group of kids actually followed us home um, and told us to go back where we come, where we came from. So instead of actually going home, we, we we decided to like stop somewhere else. And for like a week, we weren't like allowed to go to school because it was like a safety concern. Um, and that's how I started with video editing. I made a video about Muslims and our culture, um, and I played it on the school news. And that's like one of my first ways learning about the importance of storytelling. Um, and it was so cool to know that people actually wanted to hear my story. And that it actually helped people be more comfortable having Muslim um, people in the school. So that's a bit of my story. That is really big of you to have made that educational material for someone who made it so you couldn't go to school for a week. Um, 
but also really powerful storytelling. Thank you for sharing that. Ariana, how about you? Do you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, so I guess a big reason why I always have had trouble and like have been scared to reach out to people and connect with people is the way that I've kind of grown up in kind of a broken family structure. And so I think it was during the 2008 recession around 2012 or so, my mom had lost her house and she lost her job. And so for about a year, she was very depressed and she's always dealt with alcoholism. And so there was about like a year in our lives where it was just kind of me and my sister taking care of ourselves. And I just remember one night we went to some random building, which I now know was a homeless shelter. And um, we had like cried and my mom um, was like, I could tell that she was sad that we were in that position. And it was just always a lot of drama going through school. And I didn't want people to know what was going on. And so I kind of secluded myself around that age. And eventually we moved in with our grandma, who is the one that passed away in November. And um, we lived with her for about a year, but she was bipolar and had hoarding issues. And that was around the time where I would always go to the library and learn to kind of develop a love for books and stories. And I think that's also why I really enjoy kind of stories now and like the power that they can hold. Um, and then eventually my mom, like, would work, she, she worked really hard to take care of us. And so we eventually moved into a, um, apartments of our own. And my mom um, worked as a housekeeper and she's now a bus driver. And so she's worked very hard to kind of pick us back up. And I am now kind of at school at Boulder and have learned the importance of stories and how understanding your story and your history is very important and um, a big part of who we are as people. Thank you so much for sharing that. Something I hear you both saying is that you felt like at some point in your life that you weren't able to share your stories and that that was hard. How do you think that having that understanding and that experience shapes you as an interviewer and as somebody who now tells other people's stories? Um, I think that makes me first more patient, um, give people time to like process and think things through. Um, telling your story is always hard, especially to a stranger. And there's some stuff of your story that it's yours and that you don't want to share. Um, I had an interview with, um, he was like 90 years old and he was telling his story and the advice he would like to give to his family. Um, and there was a part where he, t- where he said, I want to say something, but I like, I don't want, you know, my family knowing this, like this is, um, so he didn't end up saying that part because, you know, it's his story and his, it's his thing to tell. And I think as an interviewer, you have to be respectful of that because, Sharing your story is powerful, but there's some things uh, that that you just love to keep to yourself, and that's your own. I love that. The respect means listening, but it also means letting people keep things to themselves if they're not for anyone else. Ariana, what about for you? Yeah, I think along those lines, it helps. Um, it helps me to be empathetic when talking to people and realizing why they might be kind of hesitant to talk about their story because it can be hard. And even if you didn't go through like extreme traumatic situations growing up, it, it can still be hard to talk about your story and to talk about things you might not be so proud of or things that happened in your past that you might not want others to know. And sometimes it's okay to not want to talk about your story if you're not ready. I think that's great. Tell me about where Mama Bird is growing. Hey, Sarah, what are your goals for Mama Bird as it grows? Mama Bird is definitely scaling. Um, we, as Ariana said, we have some interns and they're really impressive. Um, they're here from our Montbello community and the work they do and the passion they have is so crazy. It is temporary for us. Uh, we are here to build off of it and gain from these stories um, and then, you know, passing it down so that way we can have more and more women run this business and 
have their voice heard and tell their stories because um, we we currently have you know specific stories that we're telling as a Muslim woman, as a Black woman, um, as a Native American woman, but there are so many other stories besides ours. Um, so that's where I see Mama Bird going, um, becoming more diverse and increasing in its size to accept more women, to accept more people, and to hopefully interview you know diverse groups of people also. Ariana, what about for you? Yeah, I um, very much resonate with what Yusura was saying and how we see it as a program where just more and more stories and more different types of stories are told because each individual person is unique and there's so many more stories out there to be told. Well, I just want to thank you both so much for sharing your stories and for sharing about your storytelling. Thank you for listening to us and tell our story. Yes, thank you. That's Ariana Proctor and Yusura Ali. They're co-owners of Mama Bird Interviews, the business launched last summer. It helps people document their stories and advice through Zoom interviews and aims to economically empower the interviewers, who so far are all women of color. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. With special thanks to Rainy Toll, this is CPR News. CPR News.